If you are listening today, I would like to say thank you. Thank you for sharing space with me. For my guests, thank you for sharing your story for all to hear. The goal of the joy of learning is to share the resilience, persistence, drive, and joy you exemplify daily in your personal and professional lives. Season two is winding down, and I have much to ponder for season three. However, as always, I want you to continue to take joy in learning and enjoy this upcoming interview. Ariel Paul, PhD, received his undergraduate degree in physics from the University of Pennsylvania. He went on to receive his PhD in physics from JILA at the University of Colorado in 2007. His focus in research was on coherent imaging with EUV light. Before joining FET in 2011, Ariel completed an apprenticeship in scientific instrument making at the JILA Instrument Shop. In his time with FET, he has contributed extensively to the design and overseeing the development of FET's HTML5 simulations. So welcome to the Joy of Learning podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Paul here with us today. How are you doing today, Dr. Paul? I'm doing well. It's finally sunny again in Boulder, so it's feeling good. Yes. Has it been a little bit? Has the weather been rainy or? Well, in Colorado, we tend to have what we call a bit of a false spring. It like fools you. It's like 80 degrees for a couple of weeks and it snows again. Oh. <laughs> But no, now now it looks like we're a bit over the hump there and it's a nice day here. So. Okay, so like full on, this is springtime. There's no inkling of winter sort of creeping back in. We'll see. There, <laughs> there's often, we sometimes get snow, you know, it can be 80 degrees, 70 degrees, and then we get snow at, uh, we've had snow as late as June, I think last year. Just oh, like wow. not much, but a little bit. Okay. And so typically, so I'm thinking about skiing, right? So um, how long is your ski season? It depends on the mountain up here. There's actually a ski season that usually tries to go into July. Now there's not much snow on the mountain at that point. Ah, uh, okay. But they they'll have you know they've taken all the snow and kind of piled it up into one run. But yeah, it goes. The spring skiing is a real thing here. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Again, we we had a conversation earlier. We were talking about the possibility. I need to come to Colorado for sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it's a nice place. If you like the outdoors, it's tough to be. So. Yes, definitely the place to be. And so I wanted to start our interview off with asking you, um, how do you find your joy in day to day, especially in such a, um, a, a bit of a difficult year or a time that we're in? So how do you find your joy? It's, it's a good question. Uh, personally, so obviously here we have the outdoors. So getting outside to me is really important. I desperately need sunshine that's an important thing for me in my life I would have a hard time living in a basement with no sunshine I think a lot of people <laughs> would but uh just so I I'm lucky I have a very active dog that enjoys getting outside so yeah. even if it's you know 10 degrees outside she she wants to still she's older but she still wants to go outside uh and you know since this is the joy of learning podcast <laughs> I think 
it's important, you know, picking up new skills and, and learning is a very important piece to me of staying happy. You know, there's yes. certainly good evidence of this neurologically that getting that dopamine fix from forming some good synaptic connections is a way to keep sane and happy. So certainly learning some new skills over the pandemic, whether it be cooking, yes. <laughs> whether it be um, getting into some board games. And one of my favorite activities we've been able to get back to is going to the climbing gym. And I'm not sure if nice you're at all into rock climbing, but yeah, there's a form called bouldering, which is, you know, shorter, what we call problems. And there's a nice satisfaction where if you work on something hard each day, you're just trying to get one more move. And uh, you know, yeah, it's a similar kind of idea, right? Nice productive struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we need that struggle, right. To keep that, I guess what we say, is it called neuroplasticity going yeah. for us? So I think that's the correct terminology. Okay. I'm glad I used and it. It, <laughs> it brings me to a point for sort of the rest of our conversation. I often like to stress a lot of people say learning should be fun. And yeah. I completely disagree with that statement. Okay. What I mean by that, let me be specific. Learning should be enjoyable. Got it. Enjoyment's very different than fun to me. In Got it. That I've been an experimental physicist. I've worked in the lab long hours where it is not fun, yes. but when you get to the result, when you make things work, there's a deep sense of satisfaction. And you know, watch a kid work on a skateboard trick. They'll fall and fall or learning to ride a bike. It can be frustrating. It can be difficult, but it's enjoyable when you get the result, when you get to the, the place you're trying to get to. Yeah. So I don't believe in learning to be fun. Fun is just kind of uninhibited. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know quite how you describe <laughs> it, but enjoyable, deep satisfaction. Yes. There needs to be effort as part of the, the experience. Mm. Yes, that's, that's important. So I'm gonna ask you, when you're doing the bouldering, is it mainly inside of the gym or are you actually out and about doing that outdoors? So I'm, I'm in my forties these days. <laughs> So usually I go to the gym. The main reason I go to the gym, I have bouldered outside in my, in, in my life, but the landings are much less secure. I don't like being injured. The bouldering gym is easy. It's open late. You know, we have working people. You have nighttime to go and do some stuff. So there are practical reasons. And the climbing gym here I go to just has a really wonderful community. It's actually, you can almost guarantee the people you meet there are almost all scientists and engineers nice and that's kind of a factor of the activity the town a lot of things but you meet tons of other stem people there oh my goodness okay well that's pretty awesome <laughs> and when you brought up the age of course i'm already thinking like yeah that's true they're having these tryouts for women's basketball and I play basketball. And so of course I'm like, oh man, I should go. Then I'm like, you know what? This is not the time <laughs> to have an injury. <laughs> I don't yeah. the body heals a little slower as you get a little older. So yes. <laughs> so we see eye to eye there. So well, thank you for sharing that. And so of course, I know that physics is something that you enjoy and love. Um, as love. a subject. And so, and just in general, I mean, that's what you have your PhD in, correct? 
Absolutely correct. Yes. And so where did your love for physics actually start? Where, where did it originate from? So I often like to say I was doomed to dorkdom. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that in a negative connotation. My okay. father was a structural engineer. My mom was an analytical chemist. And I have early memories. My mom had a lab at her work that had liquid nitrogen. So, you know, if she was taking care of me and I happened to be at work with her one day, I get to play with liquid nitrogen. And so science and that sort of scientific thinking has been a part of my life from a very early age. I was a very annoying kid because like in eighth grade geometry, the teacher would say something like, well, a triangle has 180 degrees. But my dad had taught me that on a sphere, a triangle has more than 100 degrees. I'm like, well, that's only true if it's on a plane. So, you know, I had been introduced to those concepts very early on. I would say, and my friends growing up would say, I'm a bit spectrumy. So I was a little probably not quite Aspergian, but high functioning. I definitely had some of those traits. So that sort of hyper-focus and so if I had something like a math problem that was difficult to figure it out, you know, I would just keep working on it until yeah. I got it. So that definitely had me on that track. When I was young, I actually was fascinated with airplanes. If you've been to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, that's like, was my favorite place to go in the world when I was young. And I actually thought I was going to be an aerospace engineer. That was originally the, the track I was on. Okay. Uh, early in high school, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And then my, my dad started, I think, to notice, both my parents started to notice some interest in physics and got me what, a book called Six Easy Pieces, which is, I don't know if you've seen this or not, it's no. sort of six of the very easiest, most digestible Feynman lectures on physics. Hmm. Okay. And if you read those, especially that book, Six Easy Pieces, you realize by knowing a very small number of facts, you can explain an enormous amount of the phenomena in the world. So okay. he begins with the idea of atoms and just, oh, by understanding just this idea that there are atoms, mm-hmm. we can understand evaporation. We can understand evaporative cooling. We can understand all these, because I have to understand all these phenomena about the world. And that, I think, has a lot of appeal just to me. I've always wanted to know how things work. Yeah. So physics is all about the how. Can we predict what's going to happen? And then the deeper I got into it, I declared a physics major the first week I was on campus for my undergrad. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I happened to be very lucky as many people you know, in, in these fields, they run into some situation where they have some great mentor, where yeah. I had an experience, I, I did very well my first semester of physics and I went to the professor and I said, oh, you know, I did really well in your class. And he's like, who are you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I did well <laughs> in your class. I'm very curious about what you do. Mm. And he took me back to his lab and I met this guy named Jeff, who is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was a really interesting guy that he sort of knew physics, chemistry, mathematics, geology, all these things. And he took me back to a lab where they had a particle accelerator, a a sort of old school one, which is called a tandem accelerator. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, which is basically like a huge Van de Graaff. 
you know, a Van de Graaff that goes up to many millions of volts. It's a very kind of, it was popular in the 50s. It's a way to okay. do particle acceleration. And I've never seen anything like this. You know, I'm just like, what is all this? Yeah. And every single thing I would point to, I'm like, what's that? Oh, that's a cryopump. Well, what's that? And he'd explain it to me. Yes. So I just ended up going down and visiting with him basically after class almost every day and just asking him about the world, physics, how mm. things work. And just, it sort of opened my eyes to all these possibilities and all these technologies I just had before no idea about. Yes. I mean, I, as I listen to you, one of the things that I am really intrigued about is the curiosity. And so it's clear that you have that, curi you have that curiosity and it's like you wanted an explanation um, about things like, what's this, what's that? And you know, that's really important in science. I mean, one of the thing is, things are that we see, you know, science is not memorizing facts. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, look, I went to public school. I, I love the fact that we have public education in the United States, you know, you're working in Europe now and you see, you know, they have a good education system. But I do think, and this will probably lead into some of our other parts of our conversation. Okay. The education system can be good of robbing the joy of curiosity from students. And that's something we, we really need to think about deeply. You know, sure, there are procedures and facts and things you need to learn, but every kid I've ever met is naturally curious. Every kid I've ever met. I've never met an unnaturally curious child. Yeah. So what are we doing that we, we make people later mm -hmm. in life, you know, I, when I meet students, when I've taught physics and they, you, you, start talking about math and, and they just want to shut down when math is beautiful, you know, and we can keep it beautiful. We can make it beautiful. Yes. Uh, we do, an, in my opinion, sometimes if we're not careful, I should say, yeah. we can do a good job of crushing curiosity. And we, in my opinion, we never want to do that. <laughs> mm. Oh, you bring, I mean, <clears throat> this, that's such a great point. Um, I was reading a journal article, of course, and it was related to science learning, right, in terms of who wants to learn science. And they were looking at, um, particularly looking at elementary students and what retains their interest in science. And what I found that was so interesting is that they were saying in elementary school, students are so like hyped up about science, yeah. first grade. I mean, elementary and then something happens in middle school something just happens and the interest goes down so what are we doing there well and particularly there's a lot of evidence there may be a cat joining us in a moment just so you okay know. that's okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly i mean the studies i've seen uh because obviously physics is very poor in terms of representation, mm. one of the worst subjects. And I, I know definitely for gender representation, yes. we want a diverse science force. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, yes. we want in general, just the public to retain their curiosity. Yes. Even if you don't go into science, I want you to be a curious citizen when you grow yes. up. Yes. So. And be able to ask those questions 
as opposed to saying, where are the facts? Give me the facts right now. <laughs> Instead of, okay, well, why did that happen? Or this article is sourced or cited this way. Why is that? <laughs> and I feel like that's right. what's, I, I think that that's the challenge that we're facing as a society right now. We're not curious. We're not curious enough about each other because when you're curious, you want to ask questions and you want to learn, really want to learn, not confirm your biases, but right. you actually want to learn about others. So anyway. <laughs> I, I do also think that I know there are some more modern ways of teaching it, but certainly the way I grew up with the scientific method, that old school scientific method way of, of presenting it that way, I think does a disservice to us. I mean, what we're seeing now where with the pandemic, yes, good scientists change what their advice, what their analysis of the data is as more data comes in, you know, with what are we doing with masks? What are we doing with vaccines? What are we doing with these different pieces? If the, if the public, I think, understood better that science evolves on some level. There are some pieces of science, you know, FNET equals MA, except when we get to relativity. Yes. We're super solid on that, right? You know, yes. Newtonian physics, it's how we design a lot of the world and it works really, really well. <laughs> but when there's a new virus and how it's mutating and how it's changing throughout the population, we have to understand that scientists are dealing with the best data at the time. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Hmm. I wonder, I mean, when you brought up the scientific method, I'm, I'm thinking about my experiences and sort of how I was taught science and whether or not that way necessarily worked, especially with what we see right now. Yeah, I think I, making sure young to have students understand and people understand that science is a bit messy. It mm. gets to a clean place but it's jumbly and messy when you're really doing science. When, yes. you know, I've been in the lab doing real science. <laughs> it's messy interpreting the data at first. You've got to, where are your biases? Where are your errors? All these yes. things. It's yes. not a simple system. Yes. Hmm. I never, I mean, I, I love how you said that it's messy. We really need to embrace that because sometimes we, again, we like to put science into this cookie cutter box, somebody inside of a lab, pow, that's science, but there's so much more to it. Right, or the kinds of experiments, you know, for instance, the organization I work for is very into this idea of guided inquiry, keeping that inquiry piece mm. in, keeping it a little bit messy, because mm. many of the experiments I did in high school, you know, here's the cookbook, <laughs> you're in chemistry, step one, step two, step three, am I really doing science at that point? I'm observing and I'm confirming, but that messiness is missing if you're doing something purely cookbook. And that messiness is key to what science is. Yes. That, that, I mean, that's dynamic right there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that in. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's such a good point. That is an excellent point. And so you bring that up. I mean, that guided inquiry. Um, I know with next generation science standards, for the most part, that is something that is really important. And I've noticed in the past that a lot of students would get frustrated with it because a lot of times they're expecting to get the answer from me or to some form or shape, shape or form to tell them this is what it is. And that guided inquiry just gets lost. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> just thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah. And I think great guided inquiry activities 
that's the whole point. It's it's giving the right amount of guidance where students don't feel like they're fumbling in the dark. Yes. But it's a, it's leaving that correct amount of space for figuring things out on your own, mm-hmm. having them make sense. Yeah. Uh, on your own and not just being told. Yes. Yes, right there. And so that leads me, of course, you're talking a little bit about the work that you do with FET. And so how um, how are you able to, or how is FET able to reach um, a variety of learners or diverse learners? So. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's two pieces there. The first comes down to the philosophy that's embedded mm-hmm. within the organization. You know, FET's mission statement is really about bringing high quality education tools to every student, regardless of background, if they have disabilities, where they are in the world, what language they speak, what their internet access is. That's Mm -hmm. core to what the organization is founded on and what everyone who works at the organization believes. So the way that's done, so really major decisions that have occurred during the course of the project have always been guided by that underpinning philosophy. So for instance, originally FET was programmed in Java, which mm-hmm. these days, you know, teachers are like, oh God, don't even get <laughs> that near me. But when FET first came out, Java was installed, came with your Mac, if you had a Mac, mm-hmm. and it ran on Windows, and mm-hmm. there were basically just Windows and Macs out there. Sorry, yeah, PCs and Macs out there. Okay, so yeah. You, if you clicked on one of these, it would just open easily yeah. for most people who had the technology. And from very early on, FET decided those should also be downloadable. So if you don't have internet access, you can still use these. So early on in the project, one thing that was happening a lot would be people would write us from more remote countries and say, could you send us a CD of your website, basically? an installer, and then they would take it, make copies of it and send it out to diverse areas that although they had no internet connectivity, could still use the simulations. When this shift happened where Java and Flash started to become not really usable for most people, there were many choices our our project faced. Our director, Kathy Perkins decided, even though at the time it was a very difficult decision and it wasn't even clear it would be possible. Well, we need to go this HTML5 route. We need to go, we deliver through our website. So we need to go with a browser deliverable version of our Sims. That's why we chose HTML5. There was a lot of talk. Maybe we should be making native iPad apps. Maybe we should be doing these things. And Chromebooks didn't even exist at the time when we were making these decisions. So it was a great decision driven by the philosophy of the project. Okay, let's go HTML5. And now, oh, you can open on your phone. You can open on your Chromebook. You can open it on your computer. You can open it on your iPad. So mm. it works across, it's, ag- it's device agnostic yes. for the most part. And we decided, well, we still need to keep that idea of being able to serve populations that do not have internet access. Yeah. So all the HTML5 systems, that was a key component when we're developing this system for HTML5, they must be able to run offline. They must be downloadable. Yeah. So. Well- that's driven almost, that drives every single decision at FET. 
Yes. How can this reach the most people? So a lot of work is being done also right now in the accessibility realm uh, for newer HTML5 systems that are coming out include abilities to zoom in them. So if you mm -hmm. have low vision, if they have abilities to be compatible with a screen reader and include description. They have sonification elements. So you can experience that simulation of interactivity, even if you may not have the full abilities of sight. Yes. So that has driven every step of the way. How can we reach the most people? That's also why the Sims are translatable. People can use them in any different language. The website is translatable. It's all, yeah. you know, access and ability to access these resources is fundamental to every decision made at the project. And that's really incredible. First of all, you have the users in mind um, and the user experience, but at the same time, you're also factoring in cultural context for all of your users globally. So, and I think that again, that that's powerful. A lot of times we see a website, I think we take the creation of websites for granted and, and what goes into it and, and how users perceive, how they think as they interact with it. But it's very clear that that, all right, I mean, this is when you're thinking about the experience of students and also teachers, you have them in mind. It's not something that is just on its own, just created without the input of others. Well, and it's also important to note, it's a growing process. I'll, yeah. I'll give you a, a clear example. Uh, we had a sim called Color Vision that was mm -hmm. written first in Java. And originally it sort of looked, the, the figure, the face that was seeing the, the beams of light looked like an old white man, for okay. lack of a better term. Okay. <laughs> and when we were moving on to HTML5 and, and thinking more broadly about how can our sims reach more people, go, you know, we want to make, if any kind of person appears in our sim, either have multiple kinds of people of various genders, ethnicities, whatever, yes. should be young, old. But for, in that sim, we asked the graphic artist, can you make a figure that's sort of gender and ethnically ambiguous? Yeah. And then when we did interviews, some people would go like, oh, that girl or that guy or that, and we'd be like, oh, good. They're seeing it the way they want to. Got it. They're, they're projecting what they want to onto that figure. So yeah. that was an important step to me in seeing if you choose the right representations in the simulations, you can broaden the appeal to some extent. Yes. You, you don't, and we also think about this very carefully when we're thinking about context. Yeah. When we did this simulation forces in motion basics, part of it has sort of a tug of war in it. We did a bunch of research. Does tug of war exist just in America? I know I did it in gym class, but <laughs> is that cross-cultural? So, yeah. you know, if you can choose playing American football in a sim or soccer, well, soccer is clearly the better choice. It's more universal. True. So anytime we're thinking about those contexts, we try to think deeply, are we choosing an American context? Are we choosing mm. something cross-cultural? Are we choosing something genderfied? Are we, you know, these kinds of things. That's, and there's I mean, a lot of learning. I, we're not perfect. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you're going through that process, right? You're going through the reflective process in some shape or form. And then you're saying, oh, we, you know, we didn't do so well in that area. So this is what we're going to do. And I, I really love to hear that because a lot of times we could just set up shop and say that this is what this is what we're doing. This is what we're most comfortable with. And that's it.
So yeah, no, it's good to stay uncomfortable. Yes. Cause that's where the growth happens Yeah, when you're uncomfortable. I mean, just in general, when we're thinking learners and we talked about this earlier with the discomfort and learning yeah. and the fun side of things. But you know, if you make a good sim these days, it reaches some of our more popular sims. I think our most popular sim gets run over 10 million times a year. So which sim is that? Circuit construction. Ah, okay. Okay. You said 10 million. Yeah, that one, I could look up the numbers, but it gets run over 10 million times a year. Wow. For sure. It's wow. extraordinarily popular. And then what about your downloads? Because I remember in our, when we had our, our tweets or our Twitter, our, when you were live on Twitter, you, you were also referring to how many downloads you have. Overall. Sorry, yeah, we usually talk about, so we don't know how many users we have. Users, we know okay. how many times the Sims are run per year. And it has skyrocketed to over 200 million runs a year during COVID, you know, because all, with all the remote learning, not only people using us more, but also more people discovering us because all of a sudden I think people are looking around, what are some ways I can do this remotely? Yes. So that's been, you know, a huge movement in our user base and, and usage has been during the pandemic usage has gone literally doubled. So. Wow. Wow. I mean, it was already big and it went up. It, it, that makes sense. I yeah. mean, and I mean, and I love, and again, I've used it over the years. And so inside of my eighth grade, sixth grade science class, um, even with applied technology, like we utilize the, um, the simulations and it's always been tremendous. And it's been such a great compliment, especially to the work that we're doing in the classroom and also a great resource. So, and I continually share those, especially now. So I teach virtually. So I teach virtual science That's to students point. across Europe. And so it's just, I mean, I, I think that it, I, it's been incredible for me as a teacher and also me as a parent too. <laughs> So if I want to share it with my daughter, you know, it's a, it's another way to demonstrate some of the concepts. So I think that that's um, awesome and also powerful too, at the same time. Yeah. So, and I think you brought up an interesting point, which I'll just play off of just slightly, which is there's another piece of the philosophy when you say, how do you reach so many people that is embedded okay. from the very beginning, from the founder, Carl Wyman, Fet Sims are flexible. And what I mean by that is they don't come with instructions and you can use them for various learning goals. Circuit Instruction Kit is a great example and sort of where a lot of this philosophy came from is we were seeing that even though that was designed for undergraduate physics, people were using it in third grade. You know, so if you're just trying to get the idea of what is a circuit? How do you light a light bulb with a battery? Oh, you need current flowing around in, in a circuit. You can get to that learning goal. You can get to series, parallel, Ohm's law, everything later. But FET, because there's a set of people on the project who have always been teachers, understands we respect and understand the professionalism of teachers. You know your students. You know your classroom. Mm -hmm. You know your learning goals way better than I do. So why not provide a tool that lets, if you decide, hey, this sim is best, I just wanna use it a demonstration. I just wanna point some things out. Oh, this sim I wanna use for an activity. Oh, this sim I wanna give cookbook instructions. We don't ever recommend that, but maybe, okay. you, maybe it's the right thing to do in your particular context. You know, that's 
key is the same sim can be used. I've used the same sim for some motion basics, teaching college introductory physics mm. and doing demonstrations for second graders. Mm. Same sim, just using it in different ways. Yeah. And, that, and I mean, I'm trying to think if that goes back to what we were discussing a little bit earlier, but yes, it, it does relate. I mean, that concept is the same. And so I think that that's, um, again, that's powerful that you're able to actually do that. You used it with a second grader and also in your undergraduate classes. Yeah, I mean, different learning goals, different levels of what we're trying, nuance we're trying to get out of the simulation, different representations we might use. But that goes into our minds when we're designing the simulation. How can this be the most flexible tool? Yes. That, yes. that takes some time on the project to sort of realize that, you know, a lot of times we sit in design meetings, we talk about, when early on, mm, this isn't quite FET-like yet. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I, I did notice that there are some other features that you're rolling out for FET too. And so I, I believe, and I hope that I, I'm correct, it, it's with the teachers where you're allowing some of the members from the FET community to speak with teachers. Ah, so we have a virtual workshop yes. that we put online. And so what that is, you know, we have a very small team and we would love to be able to have more personal interactions with more of the teachers out there. Yes. But what we've done is there's a really nice part of our website now that's called a virtual workshop. Okay. So it's a presentation that was recorded. Okay. With a bunch of, I believe, math teachers, that one, with a really wonderful member of our team, Amanda McGarry, who was a math teacher for many years in New York City, and then joined our team and just has a lot of experience and knowledge in how to present a lesson in the classroom, how to develop a lesson in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that virtual workshop basically goes through and it's self-paced, so it's organized. Yeah. Oh, I sort of know about that. Oh, I want to learn more here. How do I do a good guided inquiry? What has FET found? So, you know, much of our sim development has been funded by grants from places like the National Science Foundation, and that has always had a research component. So we have done multitudes of classroom studies and observations to understand what actually works with our simulations in the classroom. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, that's awesome. That's good to know. And that's something I'll definitely check out. Summer break is coming. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> it seems like they're amping up a lot of summer school for different districts and, uh, across the United States. So I guess we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And I think this was felt especially important that since we had so many new users coming to FET. Yes. And we weren't out there, you know, oftentimes at conferences, we give talks about how can you use FET? How can we have sort of a, a one-stop shop where you're brand new to the project. You just want to see an idea of what's the project about? What kind of resources are there? How do you find them? It walks through all that, but also how then do you develop a lesson that is a guided inquiry style lesson? How to use what we call challenge prompts okay. uh, to effectively leverage simulations. I don't know if you've ever thought about. So what are challenge prompts? So challenge prompts would be something like, um, what are all the ways you could make the light bulb light in circuit constructions kit. Okay. Right? So, or how do you make the, how could you connect using 
two batteries and this many wires, how could you make the two brightest light bulbs? So that yeah. encourages Sam, sorry, encourages students to play with the sim and find things out. So a, a challenge prompt can be a great way to encourage exploration of the simulation. So you can think about ways um, that you could, depending on the simulation, depending on the context. Okay. Uh, you know, how with a given force can you make this object accelerate most quickly? Got oh, it. I need to turn down the friction. Oh, I need to take the mass and make it less. Whatever it is that encourages the students to play with the simulation controls, but also start to make cause and effect relationships. So there's a bit of a, a skill in thinking about what makes an effective challenge prompt, what gets students to explore the simulation, but in a way that they're also really starting to grapple with those cause and effect relationships. The reason we use things like sliders is you can go to extremes. Oh, what's happening when I do this? What's happening when I do this? True. You know, in masses and springs, you could say, how could you make the fastest oscillating mass? Oh, you've got to play around. Yes. Oh, does the amplitude matter? Oh, that doesn't actually seem to matter for the period. Oh, but the stiffness of the spring does. Oh, I need to want, I want a stiff spring and a light mass. I mean, yes. those kinds of ideas. Okay. Yes, I love that um, malleability. That's our that's just inside of those simulations. And so for you, I guess I, I wanted to know, so this might be a little bit of a big picture question looking forward for you. So how will you instill that love for physics and students in the years to come? So a big piece is what we talk about. What are our goals for FET? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are meta goals. They're not really about, are you learning the content? Mm -hmm. That's important, but a, a huge meta goal is making students feel like science is accessible mm. and enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's not just for people in lab coats somewhere. It's mm -hmm. for you and I and everyone else to experience and enjoy. So, and remember, enjoy. <laughs> So uh, that, that's why we've had complaints, in fact, from some people in Germany. Oh, really? So, it no. makes sense to you when I say it. We once had some a sort of professor in Germany come and say, well, I won't do the accent because, because that would be wrong. Um, <laughs> basically say, oh, these, some of our students feel like these feel too young. These feel too, very sort of, you know, these do not feel professional enough. Yep. But we are not willing to compromise that look and feel of our simulations. We want them to feel a little bit friendly. And I'm not going to say cartoonish, but the, the example I often give is Legos. Legos feel playful, but professional. Yes. You know, you can build a robot that can do all kinds of things with Legos. And you can also just sort of tinker around and they're yeah. colorful and they're fun. And that is key to our philosophy is how we present these. They don't, we don't want them to feel intimidating. We yeah. don't want them to feel like you can't just play around. You're not gonna break anything, you know, play around and, and see what you can learn, see what you can make sense of. So making the simulations have a certain look and feel is very important to us okay. in terms of that feeling of, of accessibility. And when I say accessibility there, I mean, just, this is something I can do. This is something that is for me as well. It's, it's not just for someone who spends their time looking at a blackboard of equations. You know, it's, 
Yes. <laughs> and so that's a piece of it. Yes. Um, but also those, those aha moments, that feeling of I can understand something, I can make predictions about what's going to happen in a system. I feel like that's very satisfying when you start to really grapple and can, can go, oh, I think I can understand that concept and I can apply that concept further. But that's a huge, I mean, <laughs> how do you make students feel like science is accessible? Because there are some parts of our world where it feels like it's going further away. Hmm. And there's some parts of our world where it feels like it's getting closer. You know, there's a great, there's some great apps for your phone where you can get a physics toolkit for free on your phone yeah. where it taps into all, you, you have, you have a decibel meter right on your phone. You have uh, accelerometers right on your phone where you can measure all these things. Yes. Uh, that's, so in some ways, the science is, is right there in your in pocket, pocket, the ability yep. to make yep. all kinds of measurements, you know, those apps have light meters in them, sound meters in them, spectrum yes. analyzers for sound. There's all kinds of experiments you can do just with this phone in your pocket. But are people interested in doing that? Can mm. we get them to see like, mm. look, with this thing that you carry around with you, you can ask all sorts of questions about the world and measure it and get yes. answers. Hmm. You have so much information, but at the same time, you don't. Yeah. If that makes sense. You know, are you curious about that information? Right? Yes. So, so that going full circle again. And so um, with that being said, there's just, there, there's so many gems inside of this interview and in our time, <laughs> I'm literally trying to, I'm just digesting what you're sharing with me. And I, I think that there are so many, so many points that we can take away from here especially with encouraging our students and beyond to be curious and also be scientists. And it doesn't have to look a specific way. And so um, I love the work that's being done at FET. I'm so glad that you were open for an interview <laughs> and connecting with- I'm ha always happy to talk. You wanna talk, you, you, you have more questions. You wanna have another talk sometime about something very specific. We want to bring up the sim and talk about it. We we can very happy to do that. Look, I I'm, I am all for it. So let's definitely do this again, Dr. Paul. I really thank you for sharing your passion, your love, and your expertise with us today. And I'm really glad to be here, Joanna Cole. I'm glad we made the connection. I'm really glad to meet you. So. Yes, thank you. I would like to take a moment to say thank you to all the listeners of the Joy of Learning podcast. My goal is always to create connection, and we have been able to connect to many of you through your experiences and through your stories. If you have questions or if you have thoughts about our podcast, I would love to hear from you. Please email info at takejoyandlearning.com.